The recording that you're about to listen to is a talk from the City Bible Forum. We would appreciate you respecting our copyright by not making copies of this talk or altering the content in any way. We hope that you find the material beneficial. If you would like more information on the City Bible Forum, you can visit us on the web at citybibleforum.org. Well, good afternoon, folks. Uh, I'd like to uh, talk to you about um, an unusual story. It's about a, a Chinese boy whose mother made him learn the piano. Now, I know that, uh, that doesn't sound that unusual, but the story... Well, let me read you the story from, uh, from the Sydney Morning Herald. Uh, it's about a man called Zhang Dongkong. Here he is, uh, world-famous pianist. Uh, you can see from the uh, photo there he got better looking uh, as he got older. Uh, if you're listening on tape, he's... Um, got a shaved head anyway uh and here he is with his uh, album release playing tchaikovsky listen to the story that was in the city morning herald zhang dong kong was born in shanghai in 1968 in the midst of the chinese cultural revolution to play the piano was a criminal offense western cultural practices were capitalist activities counter-revolutionary and very dangerous when Zhang Dong Kong was still six years old he used to practice the piano five or six hours a day on the kitchen table his mother made a cardboard replica of the piano's keyboard for him and he would play the notes. He knew what the sound of each note was because his mother would sing them as she struck the replicas. If he practised with two hands, she would sing the bass and he the treble or vice versa. When the neighbours were away on holidays, he would sit up at the old upright hidden in the family flat and actually touch the real keys. Even so, his mother would place cloths of fabric behind the note hammers to deaden the sound, just in case. The soft pedal was always on too, just in case. Zhang Dong says, I had to do it in secret, that's why the cardboard. We didn't want people to hear because if our neighbour heard a piano or a sound like a Western tune, they'd be suspicious uh, that there were capitalist activities going on in there. So there you go, six years old, practising five or six hours a day. I don't know whether the little boy saw the future, but certainly his mother did. She saw the future and she grabbed it. And now he's a world-famous pianist. He travels the world. Uh, if we go to kind of the uh, other end of the cultural spectrum, does anyone recognise this little boy? He's aged about five or six, grew up in Austria. No. Uh, what about he became a teenager? Do you recognise that? No. But then at age 15, 16, he fell in love. And yes, here it is, of course, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Fell in love not with, um, not with a woman, but with a barbell. And I began competing in, in minor bodybuilding contests, that kind of thing. At the age of 20, 21, he came to America. Uh, in his biography, Arnie says he arrived with just um, uh, very few possessions, a gym bag and very few words in English as well. Trained very hard and muscled up. And here he is, well, looking great. Um, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, bodybuilding was still in its infancy. And uh, people would say to Arnold, ah, oh, we don't want to look like you. To which he would reply, don't worry, you won't. And so Muscles won Mr Olympia seven, seven times, I think it was, then made a whole lot of movies for uh, your thinking person and eventually governor of California. Actually, he's governor from 2003 to 2008. Now, they're two remarkable people and remarkable stories, but... Don't forgive the expression, but don't ordinary people do that as well? So people who will uh, sign themselves up to a 30-year mortgage, 
study an MBA part-time, commute, uh, train really hard to run a marathon. People see what they want in the future and they, they grab it. So I wonder if I could ask you, what, what is it that you see uh, in the future that you want? What, what grabs you? What, what really matters about the future? Because that's the point of what uh, Jesus is saying in this strange parable. The parable that Lachlan read for us in Luke chapter 16. Uh, this man steals from his employer and Jesus says, learn from him, be like him. Uh, so before we send you back, uh, back to work stealing for Jesus, let's have a look at what it is that he actually um, uh, is actually teaching. If you want to understand a parable, the best way to do it uh, is understand the context and then the audience. The context in, in Luke's story, well, um, we started working our way through Luke's gospel last year. In chapter 9, verse 51, we're told, As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Uh, Luke literally, actually, in the original language, says he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so Jesus begins to walk the... Well, how far is it? Here's Google Maps, and uh, you can see up in Galilee, where the first part of Luke's Gospel happens, then to travel to Jerusalem is uh, 169 kilometres, uh, because you've got to go out, uh, now the roads go out towards the west, down along the coast. Um, you notice, by the way, that this is, uh, these are real places. So I've been, I've been to Galilee, I've been to Jerusalem. This isn't Mordor and Star Trek, these things really happened. So 169 kilometres today by car, but in uh, Jesus' day, you can see on this map, uh, to walk from Galilee to Jerusalem is about 104 kilometres in a straight line. They pretty much walk straight down the Jordan River. And Jesus walks those 10 chapters knowing that when he arrives at Jerusalem, they'll crucify him. As he goes, he's calling people to follow him um, and, and explaining to them what it would mean, what it means to, to know God, to follow Jesus. I guess essentially today we'd say what it means to be a Christian. And so if that's the context, you notice the audience, Luke tells us, chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples. Today we might say, and Jesus told the Christians, those who would follow him. Now, what is it that he tells them in this parable, this story? Well, we'll read it. Um, Luke chapter 16, verse 1, Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Uh, there's no kind of compassion or second chances, no uh, you know, first or second warnings here. Uh, you're out. Uh, and he's smart enough to realise he'll be middle management, middle-aged and unemployed in an age when there's no Centrelink, no retrenchment packages. Uh, this man sees the future very clearly. See verse 3, the manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. You notice what he's saying? He sees the future very clearly and he's saying, he's got this little window of opportunity now so that people will welcome him into their houses. How can he act now to secure his future? I, I don't know if it's still the case in large corporations, but I know um, a while ago, uh, Kathy's, uh, my wife's brother, was retrenched at a large corporation and they, as he went back to his desk to 
pick up the stuff and put it in a cardboard box, they send a security guard with him. Why? Because, well, you've still got your swipe card, you've still got passwords, you've got access to databases and all sorts of things, and if you're angry with the company, who knows what you might do. Well, this day, the rich man, uh, the master, should have sent a security guard with the manager. Because when the manager goes back to his desk, see what he's worked out? He's got this little bit of time, and so, verse 5, so he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Now that's a massive reduction, worth a lot. Um, Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill uh, and make it 800. Another huge reduction. You see what he's done? These two men are probably rich, the ones who owe so much. They are now in his debt. He saved them a fortune. And so you get to the punchline in verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly. Uh, Notice he doesn't commend the dishonest manager because he's acted dishonestly. He's acted shrewdly. Now, what does shrewd mean? Go to the dictionary. Shrewd, sensible, discriminating, astute, judicious. Uh, Wise, smart, (laughs) almost like a rat cunning, I suppose you could say. And you see, Jesus goes on. Let me read that whole verse. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. And here's what Jesus wants us to learn from this. He said, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. You see, there's two groups of people he's talking about there. When he says the people of the light, he almost certainly means um, his disciples, the ones who follow him. Jesus says, uh, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't walk in darkness. Um, So, I mean, I guess today we'd say Christians. But the first group, the people of this world, the people who aren't his followers, the people who don't follow, trust, obey him, compared to the people of the light. And what's he saying? The people of this world are more shrewd in their dealing with their own kind than the people of the light. The people of this world see what they want and they, they go for it. They grab the opportunity. They invest in their futures. I don't know if you've um, read anything by Malcolm Gladwell. Um, Malcolm Gladwell wrote a, a great little book called The Tipping Point, which is uh, a bestseller. He's written a few other books. I actually think this one is even better than The Tipping Point outliers. Uh, What does he mean by outliers? You see the subtitle, The Story of Success. It's actually the story of those who are super high achievers in their particular field, the kind of, you know, off the bell curve. Uh, And he looks at all sorts of different fields like uh, music or computing or business or sport. Uh, He says this, he was surprised, he expected that outliers, those who are super high performers, it would just be because they're particularly gifted and talented in what they do. But he says, strangely, the number 10,000 kept coming up. Now, what does he mean, 10,000? He said, to get to be world's best um, in a particular field, whatever it is, consistently it came up that people needed to have put in 10,000 hours of practice. You know, 20 hours a week for 10 years to become the best. And it was consistent across, well, he talked about the Beatles becoming, you know, the the best uh, uh, pop band in the world. wasn't overnight. They practised thousands of hours, actually in Germany of all places, did gig after gig. Or Bill Gates, um, very clever, very talented, but also 
through a series of events, he had thousands of hours of computing practice. Uh, the same applied with um, computer pro, oh, sorry, with um, in sport, that kind of thing. So these people who are so good have seen what they want in the future and they've put in their 10,000 hours. Now, it's not just without liars, is it? As I said earlier, ordinary people like you and me do this. People sign up to a 30-year mortgage. They study for an MBA. They run hundreds of kilometres for a, a marathon or whatever it is. But you notice there's, there's almost a little frustration there where Jesus says the people of this world are shrewder than the people of the light. Why? I think Jesus, I think Jesus means people who follow him aren't always consistent in the way that we think about the future. See, to follow Jesus means to believe him when he says there's a great separation coming, that heaven and hell are on the line, that those who trust him will have eternal life and forgiveness and those who don't will be separated from God forever. To believe that, well, you can't help but have that change your life and... To believe that in the future must change life now. You see what he says in verse 9, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. What, what does he mean? Let's just unpack that slowly. Use worldly wealth, literally just money or possessions. In the original language, the words are the mammon of unrighteousness, meaning stuff, money, possessions that you have. Use that to gain friends for yourself, to, to win people, so that when it's gone, when you're, I think when you die, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Put it bluntly, use your resources, your money, your opportunities now to see people come to know Jesus, to find eternal life, and when you get there, they'll welcome you. You say, well, if you follow Jesus, that's a no-brainer, really, isn't it? You, of course you'd do that because of what you believe about the future. Well, it gets complicated. And, and Jesus goes on immediately to kind of touch the heart of the complication, the heart of the problem. What gets in the way sometimes? What do we need to remember? He gives us four statements about God and the heart and money. Let, let's go through them. You'll see them there in your outline, starting at verse 10. And these are all a comparison between our wealth now, which is not worth that much, compared to the huge riches promised in eternity the value of what Jesus promises to give his people in eternity. So not very much now compared to eternity. Let's, let, let, let me read verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with little will also... Let me read that again properly. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much kind of the way life works isn't it if you see someone stealing from the stationery cabinet at work you're going to uh, trust them with your credit card if someone borrows your uh, whipper snipper and um, kind of carelessly trashes it will you loan them your car no 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 the little reflects the bigger and so the next sentence jesus says so if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth no matter how much you've got here, it's not worth that much compared to the future. If you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, the riches of eternity? You need to be trustworthy now to receive that. Or the third statement, 
And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, namely everything we have here belongs to God anyway, who will give you property of your own? God owns it all here. To have riches in eternity, you need to be trustworthy. And just in case we're not getting it, here's gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Verse 13, no servant can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You notice he doesn't say uh, don't serve God and money. He says you can't serve both God and money. Why? Well, interesting, isn't it, that Jesus talks more about money than almost any other subject. Uh, I think at the heart of it, the reason is this, that we're naturally wired up to want to find security and significance, to feel safe and to feel important. Security, significance. And, and they're not wrong things to want at all. We, it's, it, it's in our hearts. But we can either look for them in knowing our creator, the one who says what we're worth and the one who says he'll care for us, or we can look for them in money and possessions. See, money and possessions appear to apparently offer significance and security. They don't ever finally deliver, but they appear to offer it. And life will be facing one of two directions, either looking to your creator for security and significance or looking to money for that. And you can't look both directions at once. One of the other ways of thinking about it, of course, is generosity. Are you able to be generous? Are you able to give money away? Uh, If you can't give money away, and I mean, for you, it's all relative, but I mean something that, you know, stings a bit, okay? If you can't give it away, well, who's your master and who's the servant? I guess to put it kind of bluntly, what Jesus is saying is the way you handle your money shows what you really believe about God. Let me read that again. The way you handle your money shows what you really believe about God. Gloria Steinem's uh, an American uh, journalist and writer. She says this, We can tell our values by looking at our checkbook stubs. We can tell our values by looking at our checkbook stubs. Uh, if you're under 35, uh, a check uh, used to be like a piece of paper and uh, you wrote someone's name on it and an amount and then you signed it and then they took it to uh, a bank and um, handed it in and your bank gave them money out of your account. Uh, it worked quite well in the olden days. Um, what would Gloria say today? Uh, we can tell our values by looking at our... Um, credit card statements, I guess. Where our money is, that's where our heart is. In Jesus' beautiful words, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so we come to the reset idea. If you're a follower of Jesus, um, we need to pretty constantly have the reset button out on our priorities, I think. Money's not wrong, money's not evil, but it is seductive. And this week, as I've thought about this part of the Bible, I realised that I, I should go home and talk with Kathy about what we give and how and hit the reset button. And I'd ask you, if you follow Jesus, what do you see as the future? And are you investing in that? Are you taking the opportunity to win friends for yourself who welcome you into eternity?
Are you investing in people coming to know Jesus and have eternal life? And if I could finish, if you're you're not yet a follower of Jesus, and by the way, it's great that you're here, uh, really, really glad you're here, to, to take Jesus seriously again and again, he says, there's only this brief little window now, just a few years or maybe less, to, to sort out where we stand with him, to accept his offer of forgiveness, to have the promise of eternal life. And so you may want to hit the reset button on your priorities and push for and really find out. Read his words, follow through. Someone from City Bible Forum would love to sit down with you uh, and, uh, and show you what it is that Jesus says. Um, do you need to hit the reset button with him? The recording that you have just listened to is from the City Bible Forum. For more information about City Bible Forum events in your city, or to order other talks, please visit citybibleforum.org.